0: Hello, and welcome to Untangling Science, a podcast about science that is for everyone with me, Dara Ennis. You probably know me as the menace from ITV's quiz show, The Chase, but my day job is actually as a scientist at the University of Oxford. In this podcast, I want to bring the world of science to people who think it's too complicated to understand in a way which is fun and straightforward. We have a website, www.untanglingscience.com, and you can follow us on Twitter at Untanglings. I have a blog on the website that I leave useful information, links and diagrams from each episode in, so check that out. And in this fourth episode, we'll be talking about the sun. We'll use a lot of concepts from episode three in this one, so it might be a good idea if you haven't listened to that already, that you give it a listen. First of all, we will pose a series of questions that we'll try to answer so that we can get a better understanding of the sun. First of all, what exactly is it? What does it do? How is it formed? What's it like in different parts of the sun? What will happen to it in the future? And then I'll end up with a little bit about the current NASA space mission to the sun and what it's trying to understand. Well, if you're ready, let's go. When I was a student, we learned about ecosystems and food webs and all of that kind of thing, where every living thing fed on something else that fed on something else until eventually you got to what was called the primary producers. These were pretty much always green plants of some kind that turned water and some form of carbon into sugar. Photosynthesis. And photosynthesis literally means make something using light. Pretty much always, this referred to sunlight. The sun is the energy source that ultimately almost all of life relies on. So, in a way, the energy that you're using, even to listen to this podcast, is basically repurposed sunlight, which is pretty amazing when you think about it. But what exactly is the sun? And how does it generate all of this energy? Where does that energy come from? The first bit is easy the sun is a star. The reason why it looks different from the twinkly little lights we see at nighttime is just distance. In fact, as stars go, ours isn't all that big, and some of the other stars we can see are immensely bigger, but to quote Father Ted, this one is small, but those are far away. There are other stars that are hundreds of times bigger and many times brighter than our sun, as well as some that are much smaller and dimmer. Other than the fact that we revolve around it, it's actually quite ordinary as far as stars go. The sun is a little bit under 1.4 million kilometers across, which is about 100 times wider than the Earth, and it's more than 300,000 times heavier you could fit more than 1.3 million of our planet inside the sun. And it makes up about 99.8% of the mass of the whole solar system. So even though in the galaxy, it's pretty bang average as stars go, in our solar system, it's almost the whole thing. Well, the hint is in the name. It's a solar system after all. Okay. So it's really big and it's the big cheese in our solar system, but what does it and other stars, what do they do? Mostly it turns out that they burn. Stars are massive balls of plasma. It's tempting to say that they're on fire, but they're not really. So I think we should explain the difference. So fire requires three things, heat, some fuel and oxygen. And without that, you can't have a fire. So every fire extinguisher gets rid of one of those things. Water fire extinguishers get rid of some of the heat, carbon dioxide swamp out all the oxygen. There's no oxygen in space, so it's actually not possible for a fire to be sustained and stars are actually burning plasma. Plasma is thought to make up about 99% of the matter in the known universe, but it's actually relatively rare on Earth. So I'll explain what it is and we can get straight in our heads. All of stuff, everything that's like a thing, is one of four forms. And the first three, everybody knows and they all understand them. Solids, liquids, and gases. They're dead simple. And in general, if you add an energy source to a substance, so if you most of the time by heating it, you can change its form. So the classic example is ice. Ice when it's heated will melt into water, which is a liquid. And if you heat water enough, it'll turn into steam, which is a gas. So that's all fine. And those concepts pretty much everybody understands. If you take it further though, and you add a lot of energy and usually pressure to a gas, you can cause its electrons to break free and fly loose, which changes the charges of the atoms and they become ions. And If all of this sounds mad to you and you don't understand what I'm talking about, maybe have a listen to episode three, because we covered all that there, and it might make what's coming easier to follow. But anyway, this mixture of ions, electrons, and lots and lots of energy causes the gas to turn into what is called a plasma. The burning plasma emits a very large amount of energy in the form of heat and light, and it's this heat and light that we see and feel here on Earth. One of the main laws of physics is that energy can't be created, it has to come from somewhere. So where does all of this energy come from? And in the case of the sun, that's mostly down to something called nuclear fusion. Nuclear fusion is what happens when the nuclei of atoms join together. So this is the central part of the atoms with the protons and neutrons in it. And the nuclei fuse together. And that's why it's called fusion because they fuse together. Nuclear power that we use is pretty much the opposite of this process. So the nuclear power we use on Earth is nuclear fission, which you may have guessed is when we split the nucleus of an atom. In the sun, about 75% of the plasma is made of hydrogen. And when these hydrogen nuclei are fused together, they form helium. Because there's a different makeup of these two elements, there's a very slight difference in their mass. So a tiny amount of mass is left over and that mass has to go somewhere and it's released as a small amount of energy that radiates away as heat and light. For each helium atom formed, the amount of energy that radiates is quite tiny, actually. It's it's not a high amount of energy, but the sun is made up of such a large number of atoms. And this fusion is happening at such a high rate that you get a very large amount of energy. And to give you an idea of the amount of energy the sun actually produces, it's estimated to produce about 400 septillion watts of energy per second. So that's a four with 26 zeros after it. And that's... vast amount of energy. So the largest ever nuclear device detonated, it would be 1.8 billion times those every second. It's huge. It's like hundreds and thousands of years of the whole earth's electricity consumption every second. So it's a really, really vast amount of energy because it's done on such a large scale. And that's in every single second. This is done because mass is converted to energy. And in terms of mass, that means the sun loses about 5 million tons of mass every second. Now, that's a ridiculous number, so if we consider it in terms of elephants, which is a very good standard for mass, the sun loses the weight of about 1 million African elephants every second. So that's where all of that energy comes from, but now we'll have to ask, how did it all start and how did it get going? And how did the sun and other stars form? You know, where did they come from? But first, we'll do a quick recap because we've covered quite a bit. What we've covered so far is that pretty much all of the energy of all living things ultimately comes from the sun. And the sun is absolutely huge in our solar system. About 99.8% of all the mass in the solar system is the sun. But it's not very unusual in like universe terms. It's pretty much bang average in terms of stars. It's about medium size and medium heat. The sun is mostly made of hydrogen and quite a bit of helium. So about three quarters of its hydrogen. And that's pretty much all in the form of plasma. And plasma is what you get when you add a lot of energy and pressure to a gas. Hydrogen is turned into helium in the sun by a process called nuclear fusion, and it's this fusion that gives off the light and heat energy of the sun that we feel and see every day. Okay, back to the story of our favourite star. How did it form? To answer this, we need to go back about four and a half billion years to when our solar system wasn't even here. Well, obviously it wasn't here because it's only a solar system because the sun is there, but space is... Pretty much empty, but it's not really totally empty. There's quite large clouds of gas and dust that can form. And, and sometimes we can see these. They're called nebulae. So they're nebulous. They're big clouds, gas and dust floating around in space. And sometimes gravity causes these to gather around into larger congregations and sometimes multiple ones join together. And once they do that, they have such an amount of mass that they eventually begin to collapse in on themselves. They become more dense and they start to spin because this is all effect of gravity on mass. This spinning is the same type of force pretty much that causes the planets to rotate around the sun today. It's it's a common effect of gravity in space. So the spinning cloud of dust starts to flatten out into a sort of kind of pancake shape with a lump in the center. Think kind of like a fried egg kind of shape. The center lump has a stronger gravitational force because there's more of it there and the rest and it begins to get bigger and bigger and it gets more gravity. So it gets bigger and bigger and it's a vicious circle. It keeps getting bigger and bigger and more gravity acts on the cloud and the disk and it pulls it in and the disk gets smaller and the ball gets bigger. And this just keeps happening. And eventually it reaches a point where the majority of the mass is in this ball in the center. And that's called a protostar. It'll have a small disk of material still spinning around it, and eventually this forms planets and and moons and things. But now the material in the protostar gets so dense that it causes huge temperature and pressure to build up. And eventually this builds up to such a point that Fusion process starts and it kickstarts, and the protostar turns into a star proper, so it starts burning and releasing energy. In the case of the Sun, that took about 50 million years or so, so it's not quick to get to the point of releasing energy, but eventually it does. So now we know how the Sun formed, let's talk a little bit about what it's like when we look a bit closer. Well, other than the fact that it's really hot, of course. Like the Earth, the Sun is made up of different layers, and we'll go through them one by one, starting with the core at the centre. It's here in the core that the fusion happens to generate pretty much all of the energy the sun releases into space. And it makes up about one quarter of the radius of the sun. So it covers about one quarter away from the center out towards the edge. The temperature and pressure in the sun's core are absolutely immense. And this is what's necessary to maintain the fusion reactions that fuel the sun. So without this, it wouldn't be able to release all this energy it's about 15 million degrees Celsius in there and its pressure is about 250 million times more than it is at the bottom of the deepest part of the ocean. So it's a really intense place to be and this is how it maintains all of these fusion reactions. It's in this pressure cooker furnace situation, keeps all of the fusion going and about 99% of the sun's energy is produced in the core. Now, surrounding the core is an area called the radiative zone, and in this area, fusion is actually quite rare. It's extremely rare. The heat and light from the core radiate out through this zone, and the temperature and pressure drop pretty sharply from the core to the edge of this zone, and they end up about 2 million degrees by the time it reaches the next zone, which is called the convective zone. Now, convection is a way to transfer energy that's different to radiation, and the best way to think of this zone is kind of like a pot of boiling water. When you put a pot of water to boil, the hot water rises up in little currents and it moves to the surface where it reaches cooler air on the top. The water then cools, falls back towards the bottom of the pot to be heated again, and this causes a cycle of moving water. And as long as it's heated from below, it will keep cycling and rotating. In the convective zone in the sun, the same thing happens pretty much. So heat from the core, which is immensely hot and the radiative zone just outside it, cause currents of plasma to rise towards the outer layers and they start to cool a bit. And this causes them to become a bit more dense, same as it does in a pot of boiling water, and they sink back towards the core again. All of this seething mass of plasma causes changes in the magnetism of this layer, and it's this that causes things like sunspots that can be seen on the sun by using special equipment. I'm just going to say right now, though, it really is a terrible idea to look directly at the sun. If you don't have specialist equipment, it's incredibly bad for your eyes and can actually cause permanent sight damage. So please don't. Look it up on the internet, or if you have access to specialist equipment, that's fine. Now onto the last zone of the sun, the surface layer, which is called the photosphere. So this photosphere is the visible surface of the sun and it's a very thin layer on the surface, only a few kilometers thick. And if you think how big the sun is, that's a really tiny fraction. Now at this point, the temperature has actually dropped pretty drastically to a mere 5,000 degrees. I know that sounds like a lot, but compared to the millions of degrees of the core, it's actually quite cold. The energy of the sun is emitted into space from the photosphere and it's this layer that we see from Earth. So the light from the photosphere goes out into space And it takes about eight minutes to reach Earth because it's that far away. So where you see the sun's position in the sky is actually where it was about eight minutes ago because it takes that long for the light to reach your eyes. Bit mad, that idea, isn't it? Anyway, time for a recap. So the sun we know formed about four and a half billion years ago from a big cloud of gas and the planets formed around the same time and they were all formed by the same forces. So the cloud became a disk shape And eventually gravity collapsed it into a ball and the temperature and pressure in that ball got so high, the fusion started and it turned into the star we know today. And the sun has lots of different regions and they range from the super hot core in the middle to the relatively cooler 5000 degree photosphere at the surface. Now that we know all of this energy is let loose into space and it takes about eight minutes to reach us, what happens when it hits the earth? 30% of it is reflected straight back into space. So a lot of this 30% is reflected by different layers of our atmosphere and the rest is reflected back from the surface of the earth itself. Now, as white things reflect this type of energy best, a lot of this reflection is done by clouds and the polar ice caps. And for those people who are not paying attention to scientists, shrinking polar ice caps uh, are happening now due to climate change. They're much smaller than they were even 50 years ago. And that means less radiation is reflected back into space. This means the earth heats up quicker which means the ice caps shrink faster, which means, yeah, yeah. So it's a total spiral downwards. But anyway, enough about that. What happens to the 70% that does reach the Earth? So the atmosphere absorbs quite a lot of the radiation that does make it through, notably the ozone layer, which most people will have heard of. And what that does is it absorbs a lot of the ultraviolet section of the energy. So it's quite critical that we maintain the ozone layer. The Earth and sea then actually absorb quite a lot of this radiation as heat. And then a very large amount of that is actually released back into space as heat energy. So it heats up the earth and the sea, and then that radiates heat out. But the atmosphere acts kind of like a duvet, which means that all of this heat energy doesn't just vanish straight away. And that's actually quite a good thing because it stabilizes temperatures on earth. If you don't have an atmosphere to do that, what happens is that during the day, like on the moon, say, the temperatures are extremely high, and then they plunge right down to completely freezing cold at nighttime. So it's huge variations in temperature. And the particular makeup of the atmosphere is kind of like duvets with different TOG values. So depending on what gases are in and higher levels of sun gases in the atmosphere, we'll be better able to trap this heat close to the earth. And that's how we're fueling climate change. So that's how climate change gases and greenhouse gases contribute to increasing heat. So by trapping more heat and more energy in the system, you get more extreme climate trends, higher temperatures, and this all becomes more common. And it's all caused pretty much by trapping a relatively small amount extra energy from the sun, because all of the energy at heart comes from the sun. One cool thing that happens when the sun interacts with the atmosphere is polar lights. So you may notice I didn't say northern lights because the aurora borealis, which happened at the North Pole, because there's actually similar lights in the southern hemisphere called the aurora Australis, the southern lights. And regardless of which half of the planet you are, the polar lights are caused by what is known as solar wind. So solar wind is caused when the sun injects plumes of plasma into space. This travels across the solar system and the intensity of it, of this solar wind varies quite a lot and it depends on conditions at the sun, especially near the surface. So sometimes you get massive plumes of things being ejected into space and you get these huge events where the solar wind increases. And that's why the intensity of the polar lights changes and it's brighter some days than others. These charged particles, they stream across space until they hit the Earth's atmosphere. And very importantly, they run into the Earth's magnetic field. So the magnetic field deflects a huge amount of them, almost all of them back into space. But the ones that do get through tend to get funneled in towards the north and south magnetic poles. And once they get close enough to hit the atmosphere, they do it at like really high speed. And the particles, because they're plasma, are charged anyway. They collide with atoms in the atmosphere and some of the energy sort of rubs off onto atmosphere atoms. And this energy is released as light. As it goes through, they keep going down. The particles keep going further and deeper into the atmosphere, colliding with more and more atoms and releasing more and more light as they go. And depending on what type of atoms they are, the particles they hit, how high up they are and all of that kind of thing, they're emitted as different colored light. And depending on how much solar wind there is, the brightness of them can then vary. So some days you can actually read by the northern or southern lights, they're that bright. But because of the magnetic field and the way that they're funneled through our atmosphere, you always have a much better chance to see them the closer you are to the poles. This is why at lower latitudes, you very rarely see them. So yeah, northern and southern lights, the polar lights, really cool. But let's go back to the sun. We've been on Earth for too long. What will happen to the sun in the end? How will it end up? So the formation of the sun, as we said, happened about four and a half billion years ago. And the current estimates think that the sun is about halfway through its lifespan. So what will happen in another five billion years or so? We've talked already about how the sun gets its energy through fusion of hydrogen into helium, but the thing is, there's a limited amount of hydrogen. Now, there's a lot, don't get me wrong, but even that vast reserve of hydrogen will be used up because the sun's going through a million elephants worth every second. When the sun runs out of hydrogen in its core, the amount of energy produced will be reduced by quite a lot and it'll collapse onto itself. This hugely increases the pressure and allows heavier elements to start to undergo fusion too. One of the main things that happens is that helium undergoes fusion, and there's a lot of helium around at this point, and it forms things like carbon. And this stops the star by collapsing because it provides a really large amount of energy and causes a huge increase in temperature. And what happens then is that the sun will expand massively. What that will mean for us, well, not us because it's billions of years in the future, but what that will mean for the Earth is that the atmosphere and the edge of the sun will actually engulf the Earth more than likely. And at that point, the star is called a red giant. And it'll stay like this for about a billion years. Once that fusion reactions run out of fuel, so the carbon-based ones and the helium ones, the star will collapse again. into something much, much smaller that'll glow white with leftover heat. And this is called a white dwarf. So somewhere around six or seven billion years from now, that'll be the end of our sun. As we know it, it will be a white dwarf and it'll no longer undergo fusion. It should be noted that not all stars end this way. Much, much larger stars tend to explode in something called a supernova and then collapse into something so dense and so heavy and with so much gravity that it doesn't even let light escape. And these are black holes. And other stars collapse into super dense stars called neutron stars. But our sun is just way too small to end up like those. So it'll probably be a white dwarf. Time for a recap. It takes about eight minutes for the energy from the sun to reach the earth, where about 30% is reflected back into space. The atmosphere absorbs some of the rest and a lot of what makes the surface heats up the planet and that heat is then released into space except what is trapped by the atmosphere which acts kind of like a blanket. Human cause changes to the atmosphere are like making this blanket better able to hold on to this heat which is far from ideal, I think we can all agree. The sun releases something called the solar wind which is a stream of particles that travel through space and when this hits the earth it's funneled towards the poles by the magnetic field and when it hits the atmosphere energy is converted into light and we call this the polar lights the northern and southern lights and in about five billion years the sun will run out of hydrogen and it will collapse in on itself before expanding massively out as far as the earth where it'll be called a red giant and eventually it will consume all of its fuel and collapse again into a much smaller white dwarf Now, just to wrap up, a very quick word about the latest NASA mission which has launched to study the sun, and that's called the Parker Solar Probe. Interestingly, this is the only NASA spacecraft in history named after a living person, and it's named after the eminent solar scientist, Eugene Parker, who actually coined the term solar wind. It was launched in August in 2018 and cost about one and a half billion dollars, which sounds like a lot, but it's a very complicated piece of machinery. In October 2018, the Parker probe came closer to the sun than any man-made object has done so far in history. And it got to within about 10 million kilometers of the sun's surface. It will get closer and closer several times throughout its mission. So it goes in on an orbit, goes around Venus and goes back. And the issues of dealing with the intense heat and gravitational forces of this part of space were the main concern when engineers were designing the probe. And what they've done, which is same with the missions to Mercury and other close to the Earth missions is that they've constructed a special heat shield, which is a shield with a very reflective surface that's able to reflect most of the heat back. And it keeps some of the really extreme temperatures from the interior of the probe where all these sensitive electrical equipment are. So these instruments won't have their electronics fried, which means they'll be able to tell us an awful lot more about things like the magnetic field, the electrical field, you know, the origins of solar wind and an awful lot more. There's a huge amount of research being packed onto quite a small probe what this will mean is that the Parker probe will really enable scientists to much better understand the star. And that is absolutely central to our solar system, literally. And it's also central to all life on Earth. So the more we understand the sun, the better, to be honest. Okay, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. Please make sure to subscribe and share so we can get more listeners. As always, comments and suggestions are very welcome. And if you've got any ideas for things you'd like covered, please let me know. You can find a transcript of this episode on the blog posts on www.untanglingscience.com. The show was edited and produced by Neil Veggio at PodNote, And many thanks to Paul Fowler for the really funky theme tune. Next episode, we'll go back to Earth for a while and we'll talk about what plants do with all of this energy from the sun photosynthesis. Thanks a lot.